man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer just to make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study the Word and spiritually prepared for the Holy Spirit to help us pull all these things together we've been studying in, uh, in Revelation. Let's pray. Father, again, we're so thankful for our salvation. We're thankful that that salvation is not dependent upon who we are, what we've done. It's not dependent upon ethnicity. It's not dependent upon any sort of uh, intelligence factor. It's not based on any kind of education factor. It's only based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross where he paid the penalty for the sins of the world as the Passover lamb. He is our Passover and so, Father, we are very thankful that we have this, this uh, wonderful salvation that takes care of everything for us and all that you have given us as part of our spiritual life. And Father, we pray that you would ch- help us as we continue to work our way through some of these uh, important prophetic passages, that we can come to a, a good understanding of, of your word and how these things fit together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're continuing to work our way through the Armageddon campaign. I think it's important to understand this and talk a little bit about why it's important to understand this. It's The first reason is it's in Scripture, and that says it all. Because God has revealed this to us, we need to be able to understand it and to think our way, uh, our way through it. Even though the word Armageddon is only mentioned one time in relation to the uh, sixth bold judgment, and because, but the battle itself as being the this whole military campaign is part of the great day of God the Almighty that brings history uh, as to its final culmination as the uh, Son of Man, the eternal second person of the Trinity, comes to the earth to establish his kingdom, and it resolves evil and it brings to a completion these promises, the unconditional promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament, uh, the promises related to David in the Davidic covenant, promises related to the New Covenant, all of this gets pulled together. So to understand what actually takes place at those final closing weeks of the tribulation period, the last seven years that God has in his plan for Israel in terms of, of history, and to understand then how there's a transition, that's our next little bit to bite off and chew on for a while, is going to be the transition period that is covered between the return of Christ and the actual beginning of the, of the millennial kingdom and all of the judgments that take place there. And then we'll finally, after probably another six or seven weeks of study, get, get out of Revelation 19 and into Revelation chapter 20. So we're putting together the campaign of Armageddon and pulling together the eight stages. There's basically four major areas of fighting that occur 
related to the great day of God the Almighty. The first is in the Valley of Armageddon, which is actually the staging area where all of the troops, all of the uh, supplies and everything are brought in, where the armies are gathered, and then uh, where they are dispatched. The uh, second major area of, uh, of battle that we see that's uh, really offside outside the land of Israel is the destruction of Babylon. The third area is in Jerusalem itself, which we looked at last time, the, the assault, major assault by the Antichrist and his armies against Jerusalem. Uh, the fourth major area of battle is down in, in the area in uh, Edom in Petra, the area of Petra and Basra, and then it returns, the scene shifts back to Jerusalem to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is located uh, there's some d- debate over this. Most people would say that the Valley of Jehoshaphat is identical to the Kidron Valley, but others will say that perhaps the Valley of Jehoshaphat is the Valley of Barakah that is located just south of Jerusalem towards, uh, towards Bethlehem. And so there is a measure of uncertainty there. Well, we've looked at the, the campaign of Armageddon in terms of eight stages, First, the gathering of the armies of the Antichrist in the Valley of Harmageddon, uh, the Valley of Esdralon, or also referred to as the Jezreel Valley, up in the Galilee. It's a valley that runs uh, north, uh, northwest to southeast from Haifa, just to the uh, northeast of the, uh, of the uh, Carmel Ridge. Then you have the second stage, which is the destruction of Babylon, the third stage, the fall and the siege and fall of Jerusalem, and the fourth stage, the armies of the Antichrist that are dispatched to destroy the remnant of Israel that has escaped to Basra. Now, there's two groups of Jews in the land at this time. There's actually three groups on earth at the time. There are those who are still in the diaspora, but of those that are in Israel, you have one group that is in Jerusalem itself, that have been trapped and are under siege by the Antichrist and they can't escape. And then there's another group that has gone down to Basra. And so that group represents the remnant that is in the land. Uh, The uh, Antichrist dispatches one army down to uh, Basra, but at this time uh, the remnant that is there is going to turn and call upon the name of the Lord for deliverance. This is the time of Israel's national regeneration. Now, I want to make that distinction between personal regeneration and national regeneration. Personal regeneration occurs when an individual trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior. We're born spiritually dead. The Apostle Paul said that in Ephesians 2.1, we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. There's nothing we can do to change that status We can only believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. The instant we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, God the Father, through using God the Holy Spirit, regenerates us, creates in us a new new spirit, which was lost with Adam's fall, that completes our immaterial makeup. We usually refer to that as as the human spirit, and it is that which is referred to as being born again, or simply regeneration. Now, there's also national or corporate regeneration, and this is what relates to Israel when they, as a nation, turn and nationally or corporately, 
accept Jesus as Messiah. Just think through with me about this in terms of the first advent. First advent, Jesus came offering the kingdom. He was preceded by John the Baptist who offered the kingdom, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A number of people responded. These were those who came down to the Jordan. They were baptized. Jesus came along after his baptism, which was unique and distinct, indicating the beginning of his ministry. He had the same message as John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He sent out his disciples only to the house of Israel. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the kingdom that he was proclaiming was not a spiritual kingdom. It's not the overall rule of God over human history. It was the promised kingdom related to the Davidic covenant in the Old Testament that Israel would be restored in glory to the land and enter into a golden age of prosperity. That was what was being offered. The only Nowhere does John explain what the kingdom is that he's proclaiming. Nowhere does Jesus explain. The only way they would, uh, the people would, would know what it was is if they understood the Old Testament promise of this, coming, of this coming kingdom. Now, you had hundreds, if not thousands, of Jews in Israel at the time of the first advent except Jesus as Messiah. And they are personally regenerate. Nicodemus was one of them. There's a the famous uh, interchange that took place in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, We know that a man must be from God, for, no, for unless a man's from God, he can't do the miracles that you do. And Jesus said, Well, unless you uh, are born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And that so he had this whole discussion with Nicodemus at that time. And Nicodemus understood what he was talking about. Nicodemus said, well, how can a man re-enter his mother's womb and come back again? And then Jesus went on to explain that it was a spiritual birth that he was talking about. Man had to be born physically and spiritually. That's individual regeneration. But the nation Israel, because of disobedience and because of sin is under divine discipline, spiritually dead, and scattered. This is the picture that you have in Ezekiel chapter uh, 36, the dry bones, the valley of bones, when uh, the bones begin to come back together, and then as they're joined together, sinew begins to grow on the bones, and eventually uh, you have God breathing life into the bones. That breathing of life into those bones, is when the nation is regenerate. It's not a picture of individual regeneration. It's a picture of when the nation as a whole does just the opposite of what they did at the first advent. At the first advent, you had thousands of people who were individually regenerate, thousands of Jews that were individually regenerate, but you had a Jewish leadership of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that rejected Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, and as a nation, they they rejected him and they crucified him. That was their national sin, even though individually there were thousands who were personally regenerate. As a result of that, the nation, because of their disobedience, was brought under divine discipline in AD 70 and taken out of the land. Now what happens at the end of the tribulation is the nation as a corporate entity under the leadership of we're not sure who, uh, maybe some of the 144,000, maybe other political leaders who are uh, saved under the ministry 
of the two witnesses in the first half. We don't know who the leaders are, but at some point they come to a recognition that the key issue is that Israel as a whole, as a nation, needs to accept Jesus as their Messiah. And so at that point they call upon him, and that is when the nation is regenerate. So that's what we're talking about under this fifth point is Israel's regeneration. Now, how do we come to understand this? What's the basis for this in Scripture? I think it's important for us to stop and go back and think through the Old Testament promises and prophecies because this often will sound to people who are not very well trained in the Scripture or who are from even outside of any sort of premillennial or dispensational uh, camp, this will sound as if um, we've lost something, lost our minds, we've got a screw loose or something, or has there been some on the liberal left who seek to, who are anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic, seek to drive a wedge of suspicion uh, between Jews and evangelicals in terms of their support? Uh, they don't under uh, don't understand why. Evangelicals believe that we should support Israel and what is, what is going on in terms of a, a, a future for Israel. So the first place we're going to go is in uh, Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26. So this is going to lay the background for what goes on. Now in Matthew 23:37, Jesus is looking out over the city of Jerusalem, and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, a reference to Old Testament rejection of the prophets and the <clears throat> and killing the prophets. Jesus says, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her, under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this is the key, uh, key passage and key reference in terms of what must happen when the, uh, when the Jews turn and trust in Jesus Christ uh, as their Savior. This is a quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. Now, to understand the dynamic here, you have to go back to uh, Leviticus. Key passages, the, the central part of Leviticus 26 is actually in uh, verses 40 to 42, but I want to talk a little bit about the surrounding context. Now, this should be a, a chapter that you have somehow marked up in your Bible or written something in the upper margin because this is the chapter related to the five cycles uh, of discipline that God outlined to Israel. The whole chapter begins with blessing and curses, the blessing or rewards that God promised to the nation if they were obedient, and the curses or judgments that God promised if they were, if they were disobedient. There was accountability built into the, into the Mosaic Covenant. But when you, <clears throat> when you read through this, what you discover is that in the fifth stage, there is a horrid description of what would take place in Jerusalem. And this did occur both in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and it occurred again in AD 70 at the end of the war of the Jewish rebellion, which began in 67 to 70 
uh, A.D., where the people were surrounded and under siege by, uh, by the Roman armies under Titus. And it's the cannibalism that's described in verses 20 to 30, as mothers would even eat their children just to survive, the description of the devastation upon the cities and on the sanctuary, the destruction of the temple, all would be part of the fifth cycle or fifth stage of discipline. And that God promised in verse 33, I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Now, that is important to understand because in, in the Bible, the, the sword is used as a symbol for death, for the power of death. For example, you go back to Genesis uh, chapter 3, after God evicted Adam and Eve out of the garden, he set a guard around the garden of cherubs, and they had a fiery sword. And so that sword indicates they have the power to take the life of anyone who would enter into the garden. Later on in Romans chapter 13, when we have a passage dealing with the power and the authority of, of, of the government, that the government has the power of the sword, that is, the power to take life under, uh, of course, under legal guidance in terms of both military conquest and in terms of, uh, of the death penalty. So the statement that there would be a sword drawn out after them indicates uh, persecution, indicates hostility, and indicates that many would die uh, as a result of their being removed from the land. Then there's a period when, described in verse 35, when the land would lie desolate. And this was certainly the case throughout most of the period from approximately 100 A.D. up through the 19th century. And you can read the uh, travel comments of uh, Mark Twain as he traveled through uh, the, the, the land of Israel in the 1860s. 1870s, and it was just nothing was there. No crops were growing. There were no fruit trees. It was a devastated desert area, and the Arabs, the migrating Arabs that lived there, they weren't a permanent inhabitants at all. They just moved through the land. There was very few people had any permanent dwelling there, and they were doing nothing to improve the land. There were swamps, malarial swamps. It was just a horrible, horrible place to live. So, this is what God had promised as part of his judgment. Uh, as long as it lies desolate, it shall rest for the time. It did not rest on the Sabbath when you dwell in it, verse 35. Then he goes on to say that eventually uh, during this time there would be, they would perish. Many would perish among the nations and there would be a small number that would remain. Uh, verse 39, those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands, also in the, their father's iniquities, which are with them, they shall waste away. And that certainly would be a description of many of the horrors that uh, Jews faced in many different countries, uh, whether they were Muslim countries and they were under the Demi laws, or whether it was in, in Western uh, Europe where they were under various forms of Christian anti-Semitism, which is one of the worst types of sins that anybody can get can get involved in. But there is hope. There's never judgment without hope in the Bible. And verse 40 says, But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness, in which they were unfaithful to me, 
than that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will, what, remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abram. Abraham, I will remember. I will remember the land. That's the only place that phrase is found in the Old Testament. I will remember the land. God restores the land to them, not on the basis of, even though this is within the Mosaic Covenant, what it's, what it's really promising is judgment because you violate the uh, Abrahamic Covenant, I mean the Mosaic Covenant, but at the end it promises that God is going to fulfill the Abrahamic Covenant. He's not going to forget the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would give this land uh, to, his, uh, to their descendants. And so verse 44 states, Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, that's the Abrahamic covenant, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God, I am their Lord. And so it's clear that you have this promise of restoration to the land. Now, this is also embedded in two key passages in Deuteronomy. The first is in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 27 uh, to 31. That's the central passage. And then the second one starts in Deuteronomy 29, 28 and goes to the end of chapter 30. But just briefly, see the summary at the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 4 at the beginning of Deuteronomy, in chapter 4, beginning in verse 27. The promise again, not and just the verse before, which I don't have up on the screen, the verse before says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land. So this is a legal contract calling upon two witnesses to witness the contract and the uh, penalty stipulations that were written into the contract. I will utterly, you will utterly perish from the land. And then verse 27, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. Now in the weird twisted postmodern view of man, we have people come along and would, and if a, a, a Christian were to say this, that God has brought judgment against the Jews for their idolatry, that's, that, that would be deemed in today's world an anti-Semitic statement. Even, wit, even by some witnessing a belief that Jews in the future will turn to Jesus as their Savior is twisted into some form of anti-Semitism. And so you have to be aware of these kinds of traps that are out there uh, whenever you're involved in any kind of evangelism, especially if you're involved in in witnessing to uh, someone who is a Jew. So there's the promise that God made in the Old Testament that the Lord would scatter the peoples, and but also the promise of hope. And in the scattering, they're told you'll serve other gods, the work of men's hands. But in verse 29, the hope... But from there you will seek the Lord your God. That is, from there, from all the nations that you, where you are scattered. And from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. 
when you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. And so Deuteronomy 4, uh, 27 to 31, makes it very clear that there's a future restoration for Israel. Now flip over a few chapters to Deuteronomy chapter 20, chapter 30, and then just back up two verses. Break at chapter 30 and then put it in reverse for two verses. Now, Deuteronomy 28 to 30 outlines the blessings and the curses that God puts into the Mosaic Law. It is parallel to what we read in Leviticus chapter 26. And there are blessings that are promised at the beginning of Deuteronomy 28 that if they're obedient to God and obey the law, then they will be richly blessed and prospered by God, and that covers 14 verses. Then starting in Deuteronomy 28.15, there's an outline of the judgments that are going to be brought against them. And there's a sort of a historical breakdown that occurs in these verses. Verses 32 down through 44, uh, or rather 48, 32 to 48 represents the judgment that occurred in 722 and 586 B.C., the first time the nation is taken out of the land on the, uh, according to the fifth stage of discipline, completely removed from the land. In verse 32 we read, Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, and your eyes shall look and fall with longing for them all day long. And there shall be no strength in your hand. A nation whom you have not known shall eat the fruit of your land and the produce of your labor, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continuously. Then in verse uh, 36 we read, The Lord will bring you... And the king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, and you shall become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all nations where the Lord will drive you. Now that occurred in those judgments when the northern kingdom of Israel was wiped out by the Assyrians in 722, and the Assyrians had a policy. When they defeated a people, they would then scatter them, throughout their empire so that the people could not organize again and then they would just mix in and intermingle with other ethnic populations and lose their identity. And that's what gave rise to this, the whole idea of the ten lost tribes. The northern kingdom of Israel was uh, the area of the ten, uh, ten tribes, southern kingdom of Judah, two tribes. And so the idea was that those ten nations just disappeared into uh, the woodwork and was never heard of again. But the reality is that many of the, of the Jews living in the northern kingdom uh, understood prophecy, especially the believers, understood prop, the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And when they, saw, uh, uh, when, they, when they saw the Assyrians coming, they headed south and they went into Judah. And so you had many Jews from all the tribes who could clearly identify uh, their tribal their tribal background. So verses 32 through 48 focus on that first period of divine discipline. And then starting in verse 49, we have a second stage. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar from the end of the earth. As swift as the eagle flies, notice the Roman Empire was symbolized by an eagle. 
Uh, swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly, nor show favor to the young, and they shall eat the increase of your livestock, the produce of your land, etc., and besiege you. And then verse 53 describes this horror again of cannibalism. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and desperate straits in which your, in which your enemy shall distress you. So that warning. And then the third stage comes in verse 62. This is the status during the um, fifth cycle of discipline after A.D. 70. You shall be left few in number, whereas you were as the stars of heaven in multitude, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing, and you shall be plucked from off the land which you go to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and straw. Now I want you to notice a couple of things there. They're scattered among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. Now it's interesting, one of the one of the distortions that you'll sometimes hear today by those who are really anti-Zionist, and anti-Zionism is the new anti-Semitism, and they just want to, they just really want to blame Israel for everything, and they want to create this suspicion among from Jews among toward Christians who support them that that they will say, well, the only reason that evangelicals want to support Jews going back to the land is if they get all the Jews back in the land then Jesus will come back. And then when Jesus comes back, there's this battle for Armageddon, and all the Jews are, are, are destroyed. So it's really anti, a, a subtle form of anti-Semitism. Well, first of all, that's just silly because anybody with half a brain cell recognizes that man can't manipulate God. No matter what human beings try or attempt to do, it's not going to speed up or slow down the return of Christ. That time has been set from eternity past, and there's nothing that you or I can do that's going to hasten it, and there's nothing that we can do to slow it down. It's going to occur in God's proper uh, proper timing. But there have always been uh, Christians who fall prey to certain ideas that if that they can somehow do something that would help God and bringing about the end times. And I think part of that is how God uses people to bring about his ends. For example, in the, uh, in the time of the, of the Puritan uh, Commonwealth, in the middle of the 1600s in England, uh, the English Puritans were developing a very strong love for the Jews. And it's interesting how this came about because in the 1500s, in the, in the, in the 16th century, with the, following the uh, Protestant Reformation, there was a return to a literal interpretation of the Scriptures. Now, the original Reformers, uh, John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Knox, uh, some of the others, such as uh, uh, Oklampadius down in uh, Switzerland and Zwingli and Bullinger and those were were so focused on justification that they really didn't work out the implications of a literal hermeneutic, a literal interpretation in other areas of theology. But I was surprised to learn recently that that 
that uh, even Calvin's number two man, his successor, uh, Theodore Beza, uh, understood this and began to work it out in relationship to Israel. I didn't realize that it occurred that uh, that early, and I've been reading a book called The Origins of Christian Zionism that was just, just came out uh, by Donald Lewis and published by Cambridge Press, and he documents in here how the uh, uh, following the, the 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 first generation of the Reformation, that by the second generation, both Theodore Beza, who was Calvin's successor in Geneva, and Martin Bucer, who was the Protestant reformer in uh, the the city of Strasbourg, believed that the use of the word Israel in Romans eleven meant Israel, and it didn't mean the church. I mean, that's just, that, that was revolutionary, because ever since Origen came along and introduced allegorical and spiritualized interpretation into the church in the third century, Israel had meant the church. And generation and century after century, Israel meant the church, and people believed that the church replaced Old Testament Israel, and that the church was was the new Israel, and that whenever you read Israel in the New Testament, that meant the church. And here you have these two reformers, Beza and Bucer, come along, and they said, no, Israel in Romans 11 means Israel, and that means there's a future time when all the Jews are going to be saved. And that is that is when you had the little seed planted for Christian Zionism, and it began to... Uh, it began to grow from that. The, their view went into what was called the Geneva Translation of the Bible. The Geneva Translation was uh, made uh, during the late 1500s in Geneva, or mid-1500s in Geneva, when uh, Mary Tudor, also known as Bloody Mary, was not the drink, the individual. She was the Roman Catholic daughter of, of Henry VIII, and when she came to the throne after, after her brother Edward died, she turned England back to a Roman Catholic country, and they began to persecute the Protestants. And so all of these uh, Pro- British-English Protestants left England to seek refuge in Geneva. And while they were there for the three or four years of her reign, they transla- made this English translation of the Geneva Bible. And the Geneva Bible was the standard Bible for the uh, for the Puritans and the Pilgrims, that's what they brought with them on the Mayflower. They didn't have the King James Bible; it had just been done. But the Puritans and Pilgrims uh, never liked the King James translation. They adhered to the Geneva Bible with its study notes, and it was like the Schofield, the early Schofield Reference Bible. It had study notes and margin notes and all all of these things indicating. And, and teaching a Calvinistic theology, and that is what, uh, and it was actually prohibited later on in the back and forth of the, of the British, British Reformation. But the notes on Romans 11 that every Puritan read indicated that Israel meant Israel and that there was a future time when all of the Jews would be saved. And this led to a development within British uh, evangelicalism of a uh, of a love and a hope for the future restoration of the Jews uh, to the land, so that 
by the early part and mid part of the uh, 17th century during the time of the of the uh, Commonwealth when Cromwell uh, was the leader in, uh, in in Britain that there was a, a movement to legalize the return of Jews to England because Jews had been banned from England back during the reign of uh, of uh, not Jane, who was it? Uh, um, name slipped me. That wasn't John or Richard. It was Longshanks. What was his name? You know that, don't you, Tuts? Just just escapes me right now. In um, oh well. Anyway, about eleven uh, or about twelve thirty, twelve twenty, somewhere in there, all the Jews are banned from England and removed from England. And so it's not until you get to uh, this time in the mid-1600s that there's this movement to readmit uh, the Jews back to the land. And there were um, uh, two believers, Ebenezer and Joanna Cartwright, who were English Puritans living in Amsterdam, who wrote a petition to Oliver Cromwell to readmit the Jews to England. And their letter read that this nation of England with the inhabitants of the Netherlands shall be the first and the readiest to transport Israel's sons and daughters in their ships to the land promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for an everlasting inheritance. So they thought, they thought first of all, we've got to admit the Jews back to England because God's word says they've got to be scattered to all the countries, and if we don't have Jews in England, then God can't restore them to the land. So we've got to get them into England and then, with our uh, love and recognition of their need to be restored to the land, we can stand ready to return them to the land. So that was part of their motivation. Now, did that hurt the Jews? No. Did it force any of them to be saved? No. There was no uh, coercion to salvation. None of that happened during this, uh, during that particular period of time. But it was a recognition that that the motivation to uh, legalize. The Jews in England to allow them to return and to was all motivated by a certain understanding of prophecy. They realized there was a future, uh, future destiny uh, for the for uh, for the Jews. So this comes out of their study of the Old Testament. So in Deuteronomy chapter uh, twenty-nine, as we come to the end of that chapter, uh, we read. And the Lord uh, uprooted them from their land in anger and wrath and great indignation and cast them into another land as it, as it is this day. Now, that is a quote that Moses is saying that's really related to what they'll say in the future. So they're cast out, and that casting out occurred in A.D. 70. Then we come to verse 30, chapter 30, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart, with all your soul, then the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from where? From all the nations where the Lord God has scattered you. Now, when did this take place? It's never taken place. Until right now, where this is the first time in history that we're seeing Jews from all the nations in the world return back to Israel. 
Now, there's two returns based in Isaiah 11, 11, a couple other passages indicate two returns, one in unbelief and one in belief. The one in belief occurs at the end of the, of the tribulation period. But there must be a return in unbelief that precedes the tribulation so that there will be a nation in place, uh, so that there's a nation there for the Antichrist to enter into his uh, the, a covenant with to kick off the 70th week uh, of Daniel. So we're told here that the Lord will bring them and gather them back from all the nations. Now, that didn't happen in, in 538. They just came back from Babylon, and a few others trickled in from Egypt and a few other places, but it's a small number. They didn't come back from all the places where God had scattered them, just primarily from from Babylon. So God is going to restore them, and it is that understanding of a future restoration of the Jews to the land for the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that forms the basis for the rise of Christian Zionism, which is nothing more than the belief that the Jews would be restored to their land and they had a right to a national homeland in the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, verse 4 goes on to say that if any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than all your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now, what's the progression here? There is a restoration to the land in unbelief. Then there is a God restores them to the land as a nation, and he is going to bless them. And then there is a spiritual transaction that takes place for the nation. But this occurs uh, after they return, after there is a, many of them are saved uh, or regenerate individually. This is connected to their national regeneration. It's not part of their personal regeneration, going back to what I I pointed out earlier. Now, that language in uh, Isaiah, I mean, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, is very similar to language that is picked up by Jeremiah, and intentionally so, because in Jeremiah's time, Jeremiah is writing at the time of roughly 595 to 600 BC between the second uh, between the first and second invasions of Nebuchadnezzar into the land and he's addressing the people in Jeremiah in Israel at his time saying uh, the Babylonians are going to come the Babylonians are going to destroy Jerusalem the Babylonians are going to take many of our sons and daughters out of the land God is finally going to bring about this judgment that he promised back in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy, but God is eventually going to restore us to the land. So that is the, that is the context. And in Jeremiah 3.13, he gives the stipulation for what must take place before God will restore them as a nation, not individual salvation, but national regeneration. Verse 13 says you must acknowledge your iniquity. That's the same thing that Moses is saying in Deuteronomy, they had to turn to the Lord. He says, only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have, uh, and have scattered your charms 
to alien deities under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you one from a city and two from a family or from a clan, and I will bring you to Zion. Now notice, the ones that are coming back to Zion, not everybody, because this is talking about the restoration of the remnant, and not all are necessarily part of the uh, a part of the remnant. And then God says, I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days that they will say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? But that tells us what period of time this is talking about. This will be a period of time where there is such spiritual blessing that no longer are they going to look back wistfully to that glorious time under Solomon and David and Moses when they had the presence of the Lord and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. They are going to have a rich period of blessing. So this has to be talking about the millennium. It can't be talking about what happens uh, before A.D. 70. It can't be talking about what happens at any time during the church age. This could only be referring to a time that's in the millennial kingdom. So it says, no more would they look back with regret missing uh, the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. So that can only be a description of the millennial kingdom. And all the nations shall be gathered to it. That's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 2. All the nations will come to the mountain of the Lord to worship the Lord. And that is going to be the point. And then finally, no more will they follow the dictates of their evil heart. Now, that terminology... That, that shows a spiritual reversal that takes place. And this, in conjunction with those, the terminology of a circumcised heart in Deuteronomy chapter 30, tells us something about the future time uh, related, to, uh, related to Israel. So we'll come, I want to come back and talk about the new covenant. But first, we're still focusing on the fact that, that Israel has to, they're going to be out of the land and God's going to remove them completely from the land, and there has to be a turning, a confession, a national shift back to God. And this also is predicted in Hosea. So one of the things I'm trying to do in this sort of wrap-up related to Armageddon is connect the dots on lots of these other these prophecies and books we might not get to for many years in the Minor Prophets and other Old Testament prophecies to show how all of what happens in Revelation is minor. All, all, 90% of what we're saying about biblical prophecy comes out of the Old Testament unfulfilled prophecies related to the, king, the establishment of the kingdom of David for Israel. So in Hosea, there's the 5, 14, and 15, there is a warning of judgment. God says, I'll be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. In other words, God's going to come in uh, like a lion and tear them up and chew them up and spit them out, basically. And he says, I even I will tear them and go away. I will take them away and no one will rescue them. That's the judgment of the removal from the land. Uh, I will, he then says, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. That's confession, national corporate confession. Until they acknowledge their offense, then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. And this is what they, they will say, Hosea 6, 1 and following. Come and let us return to the Lord, 
For he is torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter rain and former rain to the earth. But like men, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt uh, treacherously with me, God says. So this is uh, the problem that they have. And so God then is going to deal with them when he brings them back in terms of a spiritual restoration. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles to Jeremiah uh, 31, and we're going to look at Jeremiah, uh, focus on Jeremiah 31, uh, 32. But before we get there, we need to have a little background in the context. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is the passage on the New Covenant. Deuteronomy uh, 30, verse 3 says he's going to circumcise their hearts. That's the language of the New Covenant. Now, all of this is going to be transpiring right there within that period of the spiritual regeneration of Israel. Jeremiah 31, 31 is your key passage on, on the New Covenant. But if you just turn back a couple of chapters, we see the lead-in uh, to this. And the lead-in begins in chapter 30 with a promise of the restoration of Israel and Judah. Verse 3 says, For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah. Not just Judah, which is 538, but Israel and Judah, the whole nation, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall, uh, they shall possess it. And then he goes on to talk about it that, it, that it is at this time that when this happens, they will experience the great, the, the, the day of the Lord. Uh, verse 5 says, For thus says the Lord, we've heard a voice of trembling, of fear, not of peace. Ask now and see whether man is, even, is ever in labor with a child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor? And all faces turn pale. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Now that's the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble, focusing on the fact that not, 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 we're not saying this because Christians are wishing something horrible on Israel. We're saying this because God says that that is what's going to happen. He said that would happen in 722 in the northern kingdom, and God's not anti-Semitic. He said it would happen again in 586, and God's not anti-Semitic. And he warned him again in AD 70 that this would happen, and God's not anti-Semitic. Although there are a lot of Jews who may wish that God would choose another people. But he, he's not. he is explaining to them that because they have violated that covenant, because they are worshiping other gods, because they have, uh, as it were, committed treason against him, that this is the consequence of that, of that treason. And so there will come about this tremendous time of judgment at the end times that will immediately precede the coming of the Lord. And then they will serve the Lord, verse 9, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. See, David is going to be, when he comes in the resurrection, the end of the tribulation period, David is going to be the king 
over Jerusalem, over Israel. And he will reign under the overall kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these references to David are not talking about the Lord Jesus Christ as the greater son of David. They're talking about David's role. Remember, Abraham's got to have a role in the, in the future kingdom because God promised that Abraham, you will uh, control the land. You will have all this land I will give to you. But Abraham never had it. So for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, God has got to uh, raise Abraham from the dead. That's the argument that Jesus used against the Sadducees for resurrection, is for God to be faithful to his promises. He's got to bring Abraham back from the dead to give him the land. So this this is the promise, Jeremiah 30. He goes on to say, uh, when we get over into... Uh, chapter 31 talks about the remnant uh, of, of uh, Israel that will be saved. And in verse 7 we read, For thus says the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel, calling out to the Lord to save them. This is what is occurring at the end of the tribulation period. And verse 8, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. This is God bringing them back from all the nations in the earth, among them the blind, the lame, the one with child, the one who labors with child together. A great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping and with supplications. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not slumber. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Now what will happen here is there is going to be the giving of the new covenant. And in verse 31 we read, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that day which I took them out of the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That was a temporary covenant, the Mosaic covenant. Uh, but this is talking about a new covenant that will be a permanent, a, a permanent covenant. It goes on to say in verse 33, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God. They shall be my people, and no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. And so this is talking about that time period when their hearts are circumcised. That's Deuteronomy 30, uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 3. Now, if you go on to the next chapter, God reminds them of what he is going to do. In verse uh, chapter 32, verse 37, God says, Behold, I will gather them out of all the countries where I've driven them in my anger and my fury and in great wrath. I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. They shall be my people, and I will be my, their God. That has never happened uh, in history. And it's in the context of that that we have a great prayer promise in the Old Testament in uh, 33.3 where God says, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Now the context of that is that the great and mighty thing that you don't know is regathering all of the remnant of Israel from all the nations on the earth and bringing them back to establish, to establish the kingdom. And this is what God then goes on to uh, to say and, and describe this kingdom uh, and the character, uh, characteristics of the return. Verse 6, Behold, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them 
and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth, and I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return and will rebuild those places as at the first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. There is a restoration to the land, a restoration of their spiritual uh, relationship to God, and God establishes a covenant that will never be broken, according to Jeremiah 33, verse uh, 20. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David. It's permanent. Nothing can break that covenant. And so what we see is that at the time of the return, there is this spiritual transformation that takes place. Now, this is what's, what is dealt with in Zechariah chapter 12 and 13. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, we read, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. That is the giving of the spirit that we saw in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. Uh, the spirit of grace and supplication, then they will look. Notice, they're already saved individual justification. That's why they flee to the mountains when the, when the abomination of desolation occurs. That they, they turn to the God of heaven and give glory to the great God of heaven when there's that massive earthquake that takes place near the midpoint of the tribulation when, at, when the uh, two witnesses have been resurrected to heaven. There's a massive earthquake that kills 7,000 in Jerusalem and all the rest give glory to the God of heaven. So there's a massive turning of Jews to God during that particular time. They'll pour it on the house of David, on Jerusalem. So they're, they're saved individually. And then there is a national turning to God. And then we have the establishment of the, of the new covenant. And so this then is related to what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 23, 39, where he said, Blessed is he who comes in the name, uh, comes in the name of the Lord. Now this fits with Joel 2, 28 to 29. After this, that is after the day of the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. This is the, new, the uh, establishment of the new covenant in Joel 2.28 uh, and following. And so it is also associated with all of the things that happen in the heavens at the time of the day of the Lord, the sun being darkened and the moon turning into blood at the time of the great and awesome day of the Lord, concluding with the statement, and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Not soteriological justification, but the rescue of the nation from destruction from the Antichrist, which is what uh, Roman, uh, Paul referred to in Romans eleven twenty six and 27. And so that is, and thus who toasts, in this manner, all Israel will be delivered, let's say, instead of saved. It's not justification, it's deliverance. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Nationally, corporately, this is what Daniel referred to in Daniel 9.24 when he says that 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to what? Well, these six things that are mentioned here aren't finalized until the last period of the tribulation, when they turn. Uh, 
Seventy weeks are returned for your people, for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, that is the rebellion, the idolatry of Israel, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to establish the righteous kingdom of the Messiah, to seal up vision and prophecy, to bring it all to a conclusion, and to anoint the most holy, that is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the king of Israel. And Zechariah 13.1 then says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. The nation is cleansed of their sin. So what we read when we come to those few little verses in Revelation that talk about Jesus coming back on a white horse, that, that this is just a summation of hundreds of verses in the Old Testament that point to this devastating time of the great day of the Lord. Now, next time we'll come back and look at the sixth stage of the Battle of Armageddon with the second coming of Christ. Father, we thank you for this time to look at your word, to be reminded of its consistency, its faithfulness, the way it all interfaces and interconnects, even though it's written by uh, authors over a thousand years from many different backgrounds, yet all of what they say fits together in a perfect whole. Father, strengthen our faith in you as we study your word and that we might be reminded that you are just as faithful to your promises to us as you are to Israel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.